Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast, coming to you from Bradenton Country Club, Fox Sports Analyst, Mr. Paul Azinger. Paul, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad you made it in safely. Are you podcasted out? You've done a lot of podcasts lately. I did one with Shane Bacon and uh, Mark Immelman here recently, and uh, but it was mostly it was a lot of golf swing stuff, and then uh, with Shane Bacon, it was a lead up to the Masters. And then you got, you're going to be on Faraday tomorrow night. We're recording this on Sunday before the Players Week, so how did that go with Faraday and Boo? It was great, I thought. Um, Boo was just unbelievable. They may have to put uh, subtitles subtitles <laughs> under there just so you can understand what he's saying, but he was really Boo. That was real Boo. He wasn't in character. That's who he really is. And uh, it was refreshing to hear him. He thinks different than you would think he thinks. Mm-hmm. He's an outdoorsman through and through. He builds a lake so he can eat the bass out of it. I mean, uh, Faraday was great. You know, he's been through a lot emotionally and fights battles every day. And... Uh, I've known Faraday since you know his playing days. He was a heck of a player, but man, has he turned his career into something special? He disparages his his playing career. He plays it down, and when he's announcing, no, kind man, of as a he, joke. But he was a player. He doesn't let he doesn't lead that on. He's very very humble about it. He played in a Ryder Cup. You're not you're no slouch if you're playing in the Ryder Cup. And uh, no, he had a nice long career, successful career. Uh, but you know, he'll tell you he was an alcoholic and. It just was hard for him. It just was a hard career, and he's turned all that into a positive. He doesn't really have any secrets. You know, that's a nice way to live, too. And now he's freed up and uh, still battling every day. But I love David Faraday. I'd do anything for him. And I, you mentioned talking about fishing with Boo and whatnot. I hear you're quite the fisherman as well. That's Is that how you would – how would you spend your Sunday afternoon if you weren't stuck in here with us? <laughs> Well, I'd love to fish, but I'm I'm almost fished out. I'm ready to start playing golf again just for fun. Um, That's kind of what I'm thinking. I've got a great dock in my backyard. It's 386 feet long. It's the biggest dock in that area, and the fish just cluster under it. And so I can go out and catch fish. It's hard to put a boat on top of 200 redfish, I can tell you that. You just sit there and fish off your dock. So I, I fish almost every day off my dock, but that's about it. And so you are back playing more golf these days than, than usual, or it sounds like you said, you were saying you've been taking some time off? Or Well, the desire to play yeah. is what's changed as much as anything. Plus, I was beating that sweet spot to the death, when I, <laughs> but I haven't played much since March. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to get to the, the latter half and kind of where your current competitive state is with golf, but I want to first talk about, kind of get into, how did you get into golf as a kid? I mean, everyone's got a backstory for how you ended up on the professional playing professional golf, so kind of where does that start in your mind when you talking about how you got into golf both my parents played golf um we lived on an air force base with golf clubs uh or golf courses i mean and so we were playing when we were little kids my dad would push me around on a cart and i'd be you know sitting on the cart that he pushed and so we always were around it they loved it we watched it on tv and i was pretty good by the time eighth or ninth grade and then it i just kind of sort of quit practicing and playing and by the time I left high school I was having a hard time breaking 82 days in a row Uh, but I went to Brevard Junior College and I'd never broken 70 till my second year of college really yeah and then uh so I just it was just a snap progression I had Jim Suddy Dr. Jim Suddy still teaching today 
and John Redmond were teaching me. And uh, I guess five years after that, I was a player of the year on tour. So I went from couldn't break 70 to that. That is the fastest progression yeah. ever. What but, you your... know, guys like Larry Nelson did it. He didn't hit, touch a club till he was 21 years old. There's, there's plenty of players that were late bloomers. I played all along, and I think, oh, I was a late bloomer. I was a late bloomer. I got my privileges when I was 21. And, and I hear these conversations now about how much better the players are now younger. No, they're not. They're the same. Greats are great players, you know, and they did it when they were young. I'm not saying I was great. I'm saying, but I was still young. 21, Jordan Spieth, young. Tiger Woods setting records young. Jack Nicklaus setting records young. You know, the young, it, that's when you do it. That's when you let it get away or that's when you get it done. Rory McIlroy, young, right? Yeah. So what was your game like? I think for like in college, when you were not breaking not breaking seventy till your so, till your sophomore year of college. Well, to, I mean, it was duck hooks and yeah. blocks. <laughs> That's basically duck hooks and blocks. I mean, what else are you going to hit if you're terrible? But you can get it in the air. I mean, I was athletic. So I think I like with today's technology, it's kind of guys are kind of following a very formulaic approach to making the tour. Whereas back then, there were a lot more different styles of play. Obviously, there's varying styles of play today, but. Back then, with that kind of technology, the persimmon balls and the baladas, you're, you kind of work your way around a golf course a little differently than just kind of bomb and gouge of today. So you were hitting draws all over the place? Is that how it worked? I was hitting duck hooks. But <laughs> I personally think golf's a lot more difficult today because um, if you want to try to play for a living, you know, there's so much information you have to have or you're giving something up to somebody else. Where before, you know, before you had track man and videos and – you know, that video camera is not that old. You know, another thing about videos, too, because we started, I was getting videoed in the 70s, late 70s by Jim Suddy in college. So I saw my swing for the first time. It's like seeing your voice you know, or hearing your voice. But I liked the way it looked for the most part, and he just trashed it. And uh, But I look at it like this. We've had video technology since the 70s. Everyone can video their swing. And now we're 40 years into it, at least. And still no two swings look alike. Isn't that true? Yeah. And I think that's remarkable about golf. But the information that you can get off a track man, and you can watch your putter, you can watch the ball fly off a putt and make it optimum, I think those are the sort of things that make golf hard. So when you're trying to get on tour and you're a kid that was exposed to all the information versus a guy that doesn't, get, that doesn't have any of that information, the guy that doesn't have the information is behind the eight ball. In my opinion, so and uh, no one had that information really in, in that time frame. You had, the no, we were just the first generation starting to get that sort of thing, and right. then the metalwood came out in '81. Taylor made that little metalwood, and uh, man, the golf just started to change really, really fast. And now it is more of a bomber's paradise, but there's no formula to it because everybody's different every day. You know, Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas trying to win the U.S. Open last year. Brooks Kepka's up there. Brian Harmon's up there, and. You just look at their lives. They're all completely different, coming from completely different places. And one more night's sleep changes the way all those guys felt trying to win a U.S. Open. <laughs> yeah. One more night's sleep changed everything. And, you know, Nicholas talks about that all the time. He said, every day was different. That's, ref that's great to know. I thought, oh, how come every day is different for me? I thought I was the only one. But it was different for all of us. Was Nicholas a guy, you, or who were, I guess, your role models looking up to growing up? Well, everyone loved Jack and Arnold, and I got to – I knew Arnold when I was in college. So uh, that was cool. I worked at Bay Hill. That was a big difference in my career, too. Say, talk about that transition well. from Bay, from community college to Bay Hill to Florida State. Well, at Bay Hill, I worked there for eight weeks one summer, 
and uh, we'd pick up every two weeks we'd pick up a bunch of kids that would come stay at the Arnold Palmer Lodge and then we had seven or eight teachers lined up that would teach them in little groups well we used to pick the balls for them and then we got to play and hit balls all the day long and uh, hit the range picker that's how I felt like I learned how to hit it low but you know Arnold was an influence on me and uh I would say for the most part, though, it was probably Andy Bean, Crenshaw, Trevino. Those are the guys that really put their arm around me and made a big difference. My short game changed. I got a lesson from Phil Rogers at one point in my career that just changed everything for how I thought about short game. Um, yeah, I, I say pretty much that I really never learned anything on my own except what I felt but I had to be taught everything. I had to be taught to shorten my swing. I had to be taught how to set up. I had to be taught how to chip and pitch and putt. Everything. Bunker shots. I wasn't like VJ, who doesn't ever get a lesson and figures out for himself. I was the opposite. So that's the way. Hmm. And that's just, you know, that's, that's the way it had to be. People yeah. say, oh, what a field player, what a field player. Everyone's a field player. Everyone. Cause, and they feel different every day. But I saw my teacher twice a year. These guys see their teacher all week long, right? week after week after week, and it's micromanaging. You know, Jack said it best the other day. I was with Jack at this uh, fundraiser, and uh, he said – he was asked about positions in the golf swing. He said, I never tried to put the club in position, but I tried to swing through the positions. Uh, that's a nice way to say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Hmm. That, that, that's resonating with me right now. Well, I mean, you know how, like, <laughs> is it Soren Hansen that is, like, doing the downswing at the match play where he's trying to Alex stick? Alex Norin. Alex Norin, yeah. thank you. I confused the two. Alex Norin. And he's trying to put the club in these positions, and it's like, man. It's torturous to watch that, that, that pre-shot. He's making routine. golf look hard. But I've, I've, I've played with some guys that kind of have started doing that, that, that specific pre-shot routine. They say it really helps them. It helps them with the left shoulder for whatever reason that hey, is. Hey, you know what? whatever it takes because like i said there's no two swings that look alike that hall of fame is full of different grips setups tempos positions at the top if you look at the top guys in the world i mean dustin johnson's like that at the top yeah justin thomas looks what you would think is pretty good rory takes it up and drops it way down underneath ricky lays it way off jordan speaks like this Mm -hmm. no two guys look the same bubba yeah and I don't know. After 30 years of video or 45 years of video, wouldn't you think everyone would look the same? Mm-hmm. That's not how it yeah, works. Very true. Would you consider yourself so in your in your prime and in your early years? Were you a very technical player then? I mean, for you, were you for from an analytical standpoint, could you tell you? Tell, you know, I hear I hear some guys say, you know, I've got a 152 yard shot and I've got a 154 yard shot. Like, were you were you that technical, or was was it more of a feel perspective? I mean, if you're going to win, you're probably know the difference in 54 and 52. I mean, you probably yeah. know the difference because you feel spot on, your setup's perfect. But I look at it like this. I think it, for the most part, every player knows they're going to hit a good shot before they draw it back. And why is that? Because I always say about that setup, when you're not hitting it good, there's a setup waiting for you to come back in there because we've all stood over the ball where we knew we were going to hit a good shot before we drew it back. So I believe that that two or three seconds before you draw it back, if your thoughts are all organized and perfect, you can repeat (laughs) if it's chaos. So I I think one word, every great player is about a word away or maybe one sentence away from playing great again. None of these guys need lessons anymore. They just need reminders once in a while. And then the field changes every day. Who's the best at evaluating that bunker shot and that lie. Who's the best at evaluating that shot out of the rough? 
You know, that's that's what interests me because I know there's swing changes every day. You know, the, around the greens, we have hundreds of different shots, but we only have two or three, one or two or three, possibly four techniques. Does that make sense? Yeah. We got all these shots with one technique, but, man, you learn a second technique, and all of a sudden your handicap goes from 12 to 8. So I don't know. I'm probably rambling right now. <laughs> no, it's all it's all interesting. I, I mean, just hearing the way the very successful players think about the game of golf is kind of what I just know. It's different every day for the most part, but you can be really consistent. Some guys are really more consistent. I always say, if if you had a better record than me, you probably had better feel than me. Hmm. And I can give that up because it's really uh, can't teach that. Really, feel comes first. I can't feel for you if I'm teaching you. I can tell you what I think. But I also believe this. I believe there's three or four things that every player does, and everything else is opinion or fingerprint. Everything else, the three or four things, I mean the the turn, turn, and then the club comes in last. That's turn, turn, swish, and then it has to release. Beyond that, there's nothing else that anybody does the same. Footwork's different, grip's different, arms are different, shoulders turn different. Some shoulders turn level, some turn that way. And – I don't know. I'm fascinated by the idea of it. But I do believe that you can take – see, golf is hard. I said, you know, golf is harder now because of track man and all that and the information you must know. Um, But it's simple if you really get down to it. It's just not that easy. You want to compress the ball. (laughs) You have to be in sequence to do it. And then it it becomes feel. Hmm. That's it in a nutshell. Take some of that with me. Um, all right, I want to go back in time. So after Florida State, you turned pro in 1981. Does that sound mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What was what was that like? I mean, were you destined to be a pro at that point, or was it kind of a, a risk for you to turn pro and start playing professionally? What was your status? What do you remember most about that time? Well, I was at Florida State, and I was a pretty good player my third year of college when I you know, couldn't break 70. My, I finally broke 70 my second year at Brevard. We went to Florida State, and I won the Gator, which was a big tournament to win. And I know won the Metro Conference, which is a big tournament. And uh, I think I had just had enough of being there. So I turned pro, which was risky. I had nine sponsors, put up three grand apiece, and I uh, busted out the door. And uh, my wife, Tony, was still going to Florida State, so I was gone for a little while. I, my friend from high school caddied for me. We drove out west. And uh, it's no sure thing. I remember showing, you know, we were in all that desert through Texas. In Arizona, and then we pop into Phoenix, and it was like an oasis. Um, went up there to uh, the Phoenix Open, the original Phoenix Open course, a little bitty one, and it just blew my mind that I was out there doing that. It just I couldn't believe I was there. How'd and you I, get into that event? Um, I Monday qualified for it. Hmm. I got there, and uh, there was 150 guys for 39 spots. I remember it. I don't know if 150, but there was 39 spots, wow. and I shot 69 in my first ever Monday qualifier on tour. I was a part of the Rabbit system back then. And, uh, What's the rabbit system for people? Back then, b- before the top 125 got exempt, only the top 60 were exempt. And everybody else had to Monday qualify that had any status every week. If you made the cut, you could play the next week. If you missed the cut, you had to go Monday qualify the next week. So you miss four cuts in a row, and you're choking pretty hard on that fifth Monday. Um, but you could get a streak going where you just keep making, making cuts. Um, anyway, at Phoenix, I shot 69. I was pretty happy about that. And when I got in... There were 16 guys for eight spots in a qualifier on Tuesday in a playoff the next morning, and I birdied the first hole and still did wasn't in. 
and I parred the next two, and I was in. So I got to play that. And then the first week, I made the cut, and I got paired with Bill Rogers, who uh, was a player of the year the year before. He had every green in regulation and all the par fives in two. And I was like, oh. This is a little different out here. Never seen anything like it. That first tournament, who was who's the person you saw out on the range when you were kind of like, oh, shit, like this is getting real now? Yeah, um, probably Johnny Miller Yeah, and uh, Bill Rogers. Those two right away. Trevino was there. Uh, Weisskopf was there. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you a funny – sort of a funny story. I love Weisskopf so much. They're all watching the Super Bowl, and they showed George Herbert Walker Bush in the crowd there. And it's Trevino and Weisskopf and Irwin and Watson, and they're like, all the show ponies are there. And uh, they show Herbert Walker Bush, and uh, Weisskopf says, who in the hell is Herbert Walker Bush? And he was the vice president at the time <laughs> under Reagan. So <laughs> it was just hilarious. The table busted out laughing. I was like, no, that's, that was funny. We're going to take a quick minute to talk about the new Stars and Stripes Chrome Soft Truvis golf ball that Callaway has just released. I wish you could uh, somehow put pictures into a podcast because these are honestly probably the coolest looking golf balls I've ever seen. It's got Callaway's popular Truvis pattern. You've seen these, but it's in a patriotic red, white, and blue design, which is uh, which is fitting. Callaway, all of Callaway's Chrome Softs are made here in the United States. Uh, these Truvis balls have everything you love about the performance of the Chrome Soft. They've got the graphene-infused outer core. This allows Callaway to engineer an incredible feeling ball that's uh, low spin off the tee with increased shot-stopping spin around the green. Uh, the Stars and Stripes Chrome Soft Truvis golf balls are offered in limited quantities and are available for purchase at select retailers and online starting this Friday, May 18th. Uh, when these Truvis balls, especially the custom ones, go, they are gone for good. So make sure you guys are logging on and getting those immediately. Friday, May 18th, visit, visit CallawayGolf.com for more info. Be sure to pick up yours before they're gone. Now let's get back to Paul Lazinger. So did you feel, when you're out there, did you feel like you belonged out there? Or did you feel like you're walking on eggshells? Or no, I never felt like I belonged out there. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I was so self-conscious of my grip. I remember playing the LA Open, a guy named Chuck Brinkus, who used to carry all the black and white sequences of every great player swing. He had a big briefcase over his shoulder. And Brinkus would come up and he'd show, yeah, look at Clampett, look at Clampett, look at Hallberg, look at Hallberg, check out Hogan, look where Hogan was, look at Jack. And you know what? He came up to me one day and he said, you'll never be any good with that grip. So I went back to Redmond and it really helped me. I mean, it messed me up the whole rest of the year because I didn't get lessons from I – I hadn't had a lesson from Redmond all year. It's just how, we, how I did it. And I lost my card. So I had to go play the mini tours and I went – and worked with John, and I started hitting unbelievable in like 10 minutes. He goes, well, it looks to me like you cost yourself a lot of money not coming to see me. And I said, well, they wanted me to change my grip, you know, out there, and I got real self-conscious about it, and uh, I don't know. He said, son, if you ever change your grip, don't ever come see me again. And I was already striping it. And I just thought right then and there, I'm going to quit being self-conscious about my grip, and that was a huge hurdle because nobody feels like they belong out there until they – and I'm going to tell you something else, too. Nobody thinks they're not heading back to tour school. Nobody thinks they're not head, they're exempt from ever having to go back to tour school because we've all seen great players falter and go away. It happens all the time. So you're never secure. That's the hardest part about it. Now, if, you have a, if you've won five times or if you've won once, you get a couple of years where you don't have to stress it. But I can tell you right now, Tiger Woods is going to have to start qualifying for the U.S. Open if, he doesn't qual- if he's not in. He's exempt. This year, I think but, the USGA might let, 
Give for how many years exemption. will they do yeah, it? Yeah, that's a good question. How many, I mean, Hale Irwin won three U.S. Opens. How many years are you going to give them an exemption? Yeah. I, I know. I hear you. But I'm just <laughs> saying, that's how tough it is. That, even Tiger Woods might have oh, to yeah. qualify for the U.S. Open. That doesn't even seem right. Imagine that spectacle if he's out at, at, quali- at sectional qualifiers. But that's qualifiers. what can happen, and that's why I tell you there's not one player out yeah. there. You know, Brooks Kepka got hurt. He's a United States Open champion, and he got hurt. Now, how long do you think he thinks he's cush? Right. It doesn't work that way. Now, you, maybe you can make more money now in a shorter amount of time, but as far as your longevity is concerned – Everyone's got that butterfly in there, trust me, or sitting on the back of their head, everyone. So was it 83, the year that you were playing the mini tours? Does that sound right? Yeah, and I played good. I finished second like seven times, and I, and I won once. And uh, so my confidence soared. And then I got back on tour, lost my privileges, and uh, went back to tour school and, was, and I won it. And, you know, of course, my confidence soared then. Then I got in a couple invitationals, the Colonial and Jack's tournament, and I played good in both of those, and I ended up uh, keeping my card. And then the next year, I might have had the math wrong. I'm, I think it was seven years after I broke 70, but um, that I was player of the year. But uh, I kept my card for the first time in 85, 86. I was in the top 30 for the first time, which got me in all the majors for 87. 87, I bogeyed the last few holes to lose the British. And... Uh, but I was still player of the year. I won three times that year. But that's all I remember. I blew that tournament. But, uh. <laughs> so I have been racking my brain trying to figure this out. You won three times in 87. Yeah. You were second in the Open Championship. Yeah. How were you now on the 1987 Ryder Cup team? Well, because I didn't go to sweater folding class or something. <laughs> because that's the way it no was. Way. Yes, you had to attend a one-hour class. And I didn't know about it. I didn't even know what the Ryder Cup was in 1986, I promise you. Really? No. I was trying to – we were living in a 24-foot motorhome with a cat. (laughs) And we didn't have a house or an apartment. And that's a fact. And we lived in there for three and a half years. So that was – you know, that's – you're trying to scratch. All right. I moved too fast then because I need to hear about that time frame. You lived in in a motorhome with a cat for three and a half years just on the road. We did. A 24-foot mini motorhome where you sleep over the top. And – we wrecked it a few times. I did backed into stuff and she ripped the awning off one time going through a toll booth. And I beat my head against the pad where we, you know, were sleeping one time when I forgot to sign my scorecard on the mini tour in 83 and I lost 609 bucks because I didn't sign my card. I mean, it was just like, that was how we lived. Wow. Crazy dude. But it was amazing. I know that was the first four years of our mini tour life and marriage really. And, uh, so where were we? Well, what cl- what clicked then? I guess in that time, because I mean, well, I kept my card in '85 yeah. for the first time. In '86, I got exempt for the majors. Then '87, I had that year. Yeah, it just happened. You know, I won the first tournament I played in in uh, Phoenix, so that was pretty cool. And once you win, then you know you got a couple years, so your confidence soars. My confidence was on the going the right way the whole time. I got into uh, progressive relaxation and that sort of thing. You know, I was reading. You know, I was. I don't know. I was just in a good spot. Mm-hmm. A good healthy spot, and uh, you won Las Vegas. You won the Hartford that year. Yeah, it's just amazing that all that happened. I shot sixty four the last day to win Hart to win Vegas, which was really cool. I eagled the last hole. Yeah, I mean, it just happened so fast, and uh, I think the biggest shift probably was mentally. I had the ability to stay in the moment, which is the key in everything. It's key in life, and uh, it just happened. And that was your first Open Championship you'd ever played in. Yep, was that right? played in it. One thing that really did change me was in 87 when I, I played a practice round at the day after I won Phoenix at Pebble Beach. And I ran into Burt Yancey, who 
you know, he worked hard with me too on, you know, uh, setup and timing my setup and all that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, I went and I I'm, hit a shot into the third green. He waved me up and we got on the green and he's like, he was a close talker for it was. And he got real close and he looked at me and said, congratulations. He talked like this, congratulations on winning the Phoenix Open. I said, thanks, Bert. And he said, are you going to play the British Open? I said, I, I don't I mean, I don't know. I'm thinking, where'd that come from? And you know what he said to me? He said, son, you can win all the Phoenix Opens you want, but you can't make history unless you win a major. And if you don't play the British Open, you cut yourself out of 25% of the major championships. At this time, was it still – 1987, People weren't playing the British Open no. – that frequently that's what he said and you know what when i walked down the hill to that fourth tee i was like i'm gonna play to make history and that was really a defining moment wow in my life right there as far as not choking for the money i didn't choke for the money ever again unless i was had to make a five footer to finish third by myself or tie with six people then i'm choking for the cash (laughs) but i choked for prestige Mm -hmm. and actually to be honest with you i heard gary player say this the other day he never felt like he choked. And I'll tell you the truth, I never felt like I choked. What is choking to you? Choking is mentally just going too fast, making mistakes. It's not shaking. It's just mentally, you know, the swing takes a second and a half. It's amazing all that can run into your head in that second and a half, isn't it? To me, that's choking. That's why that second and a half needs to be without words. It needs to be feel. All those words need to happen before you draw it back. I want to be on the downswing side of the ball before I take it back. I can see this side. I so, want to be on that side of the ball with when, intent. When you're choking's, swinging the club, choking's mental. are there words in your head? Are there words in your head or that's all Not feel? if I'm winning. No. <laughs> if I'm not winning, yeah. there's words popping in there, and they'll mess up your motion. You know, you think about it. You'll lose the fluidity of your motion. What does every great athlete say in their moment of greatness? What were you thinking? just happens. For the most part, they're yeah. just thinking, no, I'm thinking anything. And I believe it applies to swinging an axe to a tree or, or anything else. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of thought going on in the motion. I've heard you talk at pretty great detail about playing while nervous, and I've always found what you've said about that pretty fascinating. And that, and I think I remember you saying something along the lines of learning to play while nervous. Is that something that you think you like, – do you get less nervous as, a situ- as you get further along in your career, or do you just get – better at knowing all right this, this is going to go eight yards further this time this is going to be different because of my nerves no well i'll tell you what the same guy bert yancey you know he really dropped two sentences on me that changed that, the way i thought i remember um leading hilton head in 1985 and i was i didn't want to even pull out so nervous i was like i said to her we were sitting in the motorhome in a trailer park over there i remember it well and uh i'm like if I have to be this nervous to make a living, I might want to do something else. I said, I just didn't like, I didn't like it. I called Bert Yancey. I didn't tee off till two or something. I called Bert Yancey and, uh, I said, I'm so nervous. I don't, I don't even know if I want to play. He said, son, you want to be so nervous. You can't spit. <laughs> I was like, why is that? He says, Cause if you're not, you're in the middle of the pack. So at that point, I just decided I'm going to embrace this pressure. And what, so I still was a wreck, but I thought, what a, you know, was Billy Jean King says pressure's a privilege or whatever. In some respects, it is because you think you're going to be under the gun all the time, and then your game goes away, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't get to deal with that. Tiger knows he, it's right in his palm of his hand that he can get back under that gun, but he's got to want to do it. He wants to be so nervous he can't spit. I bet, imagine he got so confident that that 
he wasn't nervous in, against guys that were nervous. That's a big advantage. Jack was the same way. But you think he wasn't nervous in St. Pete? Valspar trying to win? I think more so. Just like anybody else. More than any other time in his career. he's doing battle. Yeah. Everybody's out there doing battle. Mm-hmm. I think that's something everyone listening to this can take take with you is in that when you are feeling nervous or feeling like even in your little 18-hole match, the, the final green, an eight-foot putt, embracing that and saying, like, this is my time to perform rather than thinking about not choking is a I think I'm working towards that in my own personal game and I think that that's kind of what you talked like I think that that moment was kind of one for you where you said look when I'm nervous this just means is where I'm supposed to be well you got to learn how to deal with the nerves I mean you can slow your heart rate down with your walking pace a little bit uh with the way you breathe in four counts real slow uh four counts real slow I mean that's helpful did you um, did you go to how did you learn to do things like that? Did you get training from someone on that? Or? I never learned anything by myself. I yeah. told you that <laughs> <laughs> everybody had to teach me everything. So, but the uh, I think the dealing with the pressure it's it's an, an embracing of the pressure to the point where if you have that eight footer you just mentioned, you ain't thinking about the pressure at that mm-hmm. point. You know you're so attuned to it. But if I look at that board and I know that it's a solo third versus tied with a bunch of guys, this you know. And then if you miss it, you beat yourself to a pulp all night and you get ready to play tomorrow mm-hmm. <laughs> or the next week. That's how I was. So speaking of pressure, you were in this your first ever British Open. You were sleeping on the 54-hole the lead. Could you sleep that night? Were you able to eat the next morning? Did you watch it? Did you watch any golf before you went out? Yeah, I watched golf before I went out. I, uh, I didn't feel good. I had the flu or something before I left. So I left one day later than I – would have ordinarily i didn't eat much because when the pressure was on i didn't eat that much so i lost weight but uh you know i played great the whole week i led from wire to wire till the wire (laughs) right to the wire um but it happens and it's one of those things it's a lost opportunity there was plenty of lost opportunities by me trust me Um, but that was the one that hurts the most because you know i was naive about what the british open meant i knew what burr had told me you can make history if you win, but the history of the British Open was something that had slipped me because I didn't even know what the Ryder Cup was two years, you know, the year before that. Um, the magnitude of winning the British, and then my major punishment for not winning the British was having to call the British Open or getting to call the British Open for ten years for ESPN and ABC, and then having to see the trophy, and then you know a lot of the time having to sit by Falda, who I honked it with. So I've been punished just about enough for losing that. <laughs> I don't lose sleep over it now. I don't. I don't think mm-hmm. about it. Only when asked, and I just now I look back at my career and I just wonder how did I do it? Because I see what was required, and it's hard. I mean, I watch these guys, mini tour guys that missed their card. Man, what do you think he needs to do to be better? Well, he's got to wait a year for tour school, so that's number one. Mm-hmm. I mean. He, because that's the only place that it matters, right? And you can relate so much to the, the ups and downs of the game. So when you're standing on that 17th tee, and you, so you bogeyed the last two holes to lose to Faldo by one, did, was that nerve situation different than anything you had experienced? You had won three times already that year. Was that nerve situation different? I would say no, it wasn't. Hmm. I mean, like, you know, like I said, I don't think I choked. I hit a really dumb shot on 17 and got it into the bunker. You and two I, shot tee shot that was bogue 18 drove down the middle with a long iron i think and had to hit five iron i was between four and five and i probably should have skinned a four iron up there but i tried to smoke a five and i pulled it 15 feet and it drew and went in a bunker and i was on the downslope of the bunker and it was just one of those it happened so fast and i was so mad about it for a while there and then i then i became heartbroken and uh 
you know, you're not over it till you win again. And I won Bay Hill the next year. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's like anything else. You, you know, it's like you ask Freddie, hey, how's your back? How's your back? You don't want to hear that anymore. Right. But when he wins again, no one asks him how his back is. Right. <laughs> As we watched a bunch of Masters highlights leading up to it, the Masters this year, and watched Ed Sneed, the, the, yeah. the Masters that he gave away, that was painful to watch. And I went back and watched the 87 Open. It wasn't like there was a moment where things fell apart for you. You just got some, not I wouldn't say unlucky breaks, but just hit it in the wrong spots a couple well, times. Three putted 10 and 11. Yeah. And I bogeyed 17 and 18. So, that, but I don't think anyone thought I really choked. No. I never felt I choked, but I was glad I wasn't framed choking, mm-hmm. choker. Um, I didn't flare 140 yards right. Right. I hit it good. and uh, But it happens. And uh, I'm just thankful that. I won the PGA in 93 because yeah. there was nothing going to happen after that. Once I got that sickness in me, that was my game never was the same. Mm-hmm. So thank God that I was <laughs> able to pull that off. Did uh, the crowd, after you missed the putt, the putt on the last screen, the crowd kind of cheer? Oh, Stato yeah, they won. cheered. Did that bother you? Did you oh, notice yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, it made me mad. I yeah. told you I was watching that closing ceremony. My arms were folded. My jaw was clenched. There's a couple pictures. Oh, there's a great picture. Uh, the guy that finished second, Brian Davis, I think. No, not Brian. His last name's Davis. Always wore knickers. You used to see him. There's a Roger picture. Davis. Roger Davis. You yeah. used to see Australian Roger. Guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. You used to see Roger looking at me. And then the picture is him looking at me and me looking straight out like shock on my face. I don't think, I don't know if I have it, but it's sitting around there somewhere. <laughs> um, so does that is it safe to say that's kind of where your golf rivalry with Nick Faldo started? Well, I had a rivalry with Faldo, but he didn't have a rivalry with me. <laughs> it was a one way. <laughs> that's just the way that went, you know. Uh, Arnold and Jack was a real rivalry, but Nick and I, we you know made me not like Nick for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe jealous or something. I don't know, but. He didn't have much to say other than, you know, he walked up and said, sorry about that. That was it. And I was like, man, I hate that guy. <laughs> but uh, I grew to love the guy yeah. when we were in the broadcast. But, yeah, he's great. Faldo's, you know, he's good. Did you feel like you got revenge in 2008? Oh, yeah, Cup? it was all revenge for me, all of it. I was, and I was outsmarting him, you know, and outthinking him because we did a lot there at that Ryder Cup. Mm-hmm. You know, he ended up with a like a drummer from a rock and roll band as an assistant, and I got – you know, Raymond Floyd, he was big influence in my career too. Mm-hmm. And Dave Stockton and Olin Brown, they're all with their little pod groups and all that. So I, I really uh, was outside the box thinking, got our players enthused. And uh, instead of dreading the Ryder Cup because we keep losing, sure. uh, I think they really anticipated it and wanted to see what it was all about. But uh, yeah, it was a little revenge for me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to, we'll get to the Ryder, the captaining the Ryder Cup. But then, so you missed it in 87 because you didn't attend your class that you needed to. Was there controversy around that? Or? They changed the rule after okay, that. Okay, I figured they that was the They changed the rule after that. It was uh, pretty obvious we needed help. Right. We needed to get the best players, the hottest players in there. Because that was the year that we lost to the internationals at home, or the Europeans at home for the first time that's at right. Field. And, and then, that's when I knew what Ryder Cup was, when yeah. Jose was dancing across the green. <laughs> and I was like, ooh. And then the 89 Ryder Cup is your first Ryder Cup. I made it. Yep. You were 3-1. and one. What do you remember about your very first Ryder Cup match? Uh, well, it was Curtis and I. And we were playing Gordon Brand and I think Sam Torrance. And they beat us on the last hole. Gordon Brand hit his second shot on the top of the tent of the spectator tent, which is 20 yards offline, minimum, right of the right bunker. Hits the top of the tent, goes forward, and then rolls like a son of a gun, 
bounces, comes off the tent and bounces down onto the green. And he ended up beating us in the match one up. Curtis and I lost one up. The ball's going out of bounds. <laughs> I remember losing that match. And then I got uh, with Chip Beck, and we won. And then we played Faldo Woosen in one match. And that was a revenge match for me. I remember telling Chip on the first tee. I mean, there was like, Faldo, Faldo. The flags are going. And they came up. And I, I remember saying to Chip Beck, it was pretty loud. I said, Chipper, I don't know about you, but I'd taken this match personal. And he goes, I love it, Singer. Me too, Singer. <laughs> and we made 11 birdies. <laughs> they made nine birdies. Wow. And we beat them two and one. Then I was really confident. We went. And I got. Yeah, you know, I got lucky. So lucky at Ryder Cup because I drew their superstars. Mm-hmm. I could have drawn a bunch of guys you never heard of, but I kept drawing. And it's just a blind draw. It's luck. I was going to say you were, went up against Seve in the singles. That wasn't prearranged at all. None of Captains, it is. Yeah, it's just a luck fest. Who mm-hmm. do you get? And you know, our strategy was to look for their best players in some respects because they were better than us, and we knew it. But uh, get our hottest players out first or whatever. I was first match out because I was playing so well. Mm. And I plucked Seve, which is the greatest gift ever to get Seve. And then we battled right from the beginning. And it's a famous match. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of controversy went with that match. And, you know, I'm, I'm vindicated by it because of Andy McPhee and, and the referee of the match is, you know, he'll tell you what happened. Well, what did happen? Well, he accused me of taking a bad drop on 18. I, I figured you'd probably get to that point. But I was like – Savvy, you told us where to drop it. I yeah. just kept that point between me and the hole and went backwards. Oh, okay. Um, but we had stuff going on the whole match. I called him the king of gamesmanship, and he said the American team's 11 nice guys in Zinger. That was 91, right? Oh, yeah, but still. But was, it was bleed a, over from 89. A scuff sure. ball incident from 89, is that oh, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that was from 91. No, that was 89. Yeah, in their singles match. Well, see, I draw Savvy on Saturday night, and Curtis walks up to me and says, don't let him pull anything on you tomorrow. So my mindset shifts. <laughs> so then we get to uh, the first tee, and Curtis goes off last, and I'm off first. So there's a lot, big gap between those tee times, and he comes walking up to me on the first tee. Hey, how are you feeling? Good. So, don't let him pull anything on you today. So back then the golf balls were getting shredded by the square grooves, mm-hmm. and we were both using square groove wedges. We hit irons off the second tee, three irons, both of us, wedge into the green. He hit it about 12 feet. I hit it about four feet. And uh, we get up there, and he takes his ball and tosses it to his caddy, Ian, and says, I take this ball out of play. And uh, I was like, Curtis popped in my head. You know? <laughs> That's so My ball was shredded. I had hair. I used a ping wedge back then, and it really wrecked the golf balls. And you could, excuse me, you could pick my golf ball up by the paint thread <laughs> that was hanging from it. And so I can't take it out of play, though. I could rub that paint thing off of there, but I can't take the ball out. So anyway, I just thought he's pulling something right there. And so I looked at his caddy. I asked, I said, I need to see that ball. And I uh, looked at it and I walked over to Seve. And he was already lining up as he squatted down. And he just looked up at me like that. And he's, I said, I don't think he can take this ball out. I said, look at mine. It looks just as bad. He goes, the European rule says this ball is no good. <clears throat> I said, well, in the U.S., you're going to have to play it. <laughs> I said, maybe we should ask the official. So Annie McPhee came in. Um, great guy. He, uh, he says, I'm sorry, Seve, you have to play this ball. Well, the crowd was into it now, and they were jeering me. Mm-hmm. The best thing about that, too, is, is when the crowd – well, actually, Seve lined that put up from every direction. Oh, no, let me just say this. I looked at Seve, and I said, I'm sorry, my ball looks just as bad. 
And Savvy looked at me and he said, no, no, it's okay. If this is the way you want to play today, we can play this way. And I swear, bro, I, my hands do not shake when I play. But at that moment, I was starting to quiver. <laughs> he made the 12-footer. Of course he did. And then as the crowd noise died down, some British guy yelled out, what would you have done with a good ball, Savvy? <laughs> and I was thinking, man. I put my ball down. I was like this. I hit this putt that went in the hole and came right back at me, and the crowd just yelled out. They cheered twice as loud sure. when mine missed. And it was really a rough match after that. We went at it. Um, I didn't think he was hitting it that good. Raymond Floyd comes up to me. I was two down after four in the car. He was all worried. And uh, he's, you all right? I said, I'm great. I said, he's not hitting it that good. He's going to give me a couple holes you watch. He duck-hooked it right in the junk on five. Gift. Um, and so he gifted me a couple. And we just did battle right to the 18th hole. And uh, even my caddy was doing battle. It was just awesome, dude. It was like, welcome to the Ryder Cup. And it became, you know, it's in our head. It's in their blood. Mm -hmm. So it's different for them. But my head flipped on Ryder Cup. I'm like, this is it. whoop these boys. That's the way I thought. I mean, the passion that people talk about, I, get the, I talk about the Ryder Cup on every podcast because the, the, the stories that come from it are better than anything that comes from stroke play events, that's for There's sure. There's a lot of stuff, man, that happens in those matches. You know, on 10, I hit it to the right of the green over there going for the green in 89. And seven, when I got up, it was on some lady's plastic whatever. And when I got – I had to drop. closer. It kept going closer to the green. And when I stood up, before I dropped, I stood up and bumped into Seve. He goes, I want to know right where your ball was. And I mean, it was like that out there. <laughs> and I, he, then he grabbed his ball and tried to place it all around. And thank God it didn't stay anywhere. And I had to set mine on a little tuft of grass to get it to stay. And he's like, now you have a perfect lie. And I was like, it was just like we went at it. But, you know, we were good friends before the Ryder Cup. And I think we were just fine after. Everybody thinks we hated each other and all that. You know, Seve taught me as much as anybody, too. Mm-hmm. He was great. Um, to Golf rivalry is different than kind of a personal dislike. The Ryder Cup's right? different. Yeah, it, there was a passion there. You know, we were both patriotic, I guess, in some respects, and then we were very passionate. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it boils over to '91, the War by the Shore. You and Chip Beck get paired against Seve and yeah. uh, Jose Maria. Yeah. And was it the first match that there was a, the, the the ball compression incident? Can you walk us through what happened there? See, I, I hate that it's remembered for ball compression incident, but that's what it's remembered for. And I got four of those golf balls brand new sitting in my room that I found in my old Ryder Cup bag. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they took a bad drop on number two that the official let them get away with. They played it. They broke the rule, basically. They hit a ball that they couldn't tell went in the hazard. Then they played a provisional, which is for a lost ball. And then they went back and dropped like the ball, like they knew the ball went in hazard, but they didn't know. And it was controversial, but we won the hole. And then the fourth hole, Seve hooked it in the junk. And the official yells out, he says, five minutes is up. And then literally within 10 seconds, they found the ball and he let them play it. And I just was ape about that. And Chipper's like, calm down. I said, no, man, he can't do it. So that was how that match started. Okay. Didn't know that. Yes, and I actually requested another official. So we had another official come in. We had two officials on that match. Then on on 10-T, they accused us of using the wrong compression ball, which we did. And it was totally my fault. But it was a 90 compression titleist versus a 100 compression titleist, and we were on the first par five. Here's how it works. If, If the 100 compression titleist goes off number one, the 100 compression titleist has to go first off every odd hole the rest of the day. Okay. That's as simple as what it is. 
that, that 90 compression ball, which was red, if it goes off number two, it goes off every even hole the rest of the day. When is that still to, that way? You can alternate balls? I don't know what okay. the rule is now. They've changed. They've done a bunch of changes. Okay. But I think it's a one-ball rule now, actually. Yeah, I think to so. Tell you the truth. I do know what it is. Um, yeah, so uh, my pea brain was just figuring, well, if you hit my ball off the tee, then I lay or lay up. No, if I hit your ball off the tee, or if you hit my no, – no, no, here's what it was. If you hit my ball off the tee, you lay up, I get to hit my ball into the green. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. And they caught that, and that's illegal. But they didn't call it. It was on seven. Eight, we played normal. Nine, we played normal. So they tried to call us on it, I guess, on 10-T. And we were two up or three up or something. It shook us up. I'm sorry it was hard for me to remember exactly that no, sequence, but that's how it went. Understandable. It yeah, was, this is Paul Azinger here, completely confused. 27 years ago. what happened. But, um, yeah, anyway – it was it was ugly. I always wondered how they could tell. How would they even know? I guess it was the color of the ball was different. That's no, just the logo, just the just Titleist the... stamp and the number on the ball. How did they notice that? Black or red? They crazy. heard us talking about it. Oh, okay. I was free and talk. We were talking about it like yeah. it was a great strat. Boy, aren't we smart? Right. But boy, we Messed butchered it, it because <laughs> if you hit a black ball off the first tee, it's got to be off every odd hole. And it just seemed like that kind of triggered the flames a little bit for that entire made it great cup. in the yeah. end that yeah. little bit of controversy made the Ryder cup great it made actually americans really started to care about the Ryder cup mm-hmm. but you know i never wanted to rub anybody's nose in anything either and i just was trying to protect what we were doing e- you know even when we won the Ryder cup you know i felt so bad that langer missed a putt in 91 that i didn't run out there and celebrate yeah it's hard to watch i put my arm around her and i just like we just watched i didn't go out there and celebrate because i knew how much that would have affected me then the next year, 93, I was the last match out against Faldo, and I knew what happened to Langer, you know, so that'll make I was nervous all day that day. Mm-hmm. Your match ended up, the, the, club, the cup had been clinched by the time you and Faldo got to 18. Yeah, I right? was one down. Yeah. Don't tell me you didn't want to win that hole to make sure you had I did, that match. But once, once he missed his putt, and I had about a 12 or 14 footer for birdie, he could have pain stewarded me and said, oh, that's good. And We'd have tied the match, and mm-hmm. it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. But he didn't. He sat there at arms folded, and I was like thinking, man, Fowler should be giving me this putt. Would you have given it to him? Probably not. No way. No way. <laughs> he looked at me like, oh, it never crossed my mind, you know? Yeah, no way. you got to make you putt that. Oh, yeah, I putted it, and I made it, thank yep. God. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I was that, that day I was a wreck. All day. In 91, you're saying? 93. Oh, 93, just against Faldo. Last match out, knowing it's coming down to us. And then 02 – I was like the seventh match out or something, and I was terribly vulnerable there. It was coming down to us. If I don't hold the bunker shot against Nicholas Faust, we lose right then and there. And a matter of fact, I made a 10-foot putt for birdie, or for, yeah, for birdie on uh, 17 to keep it alive because all the Europeans were celebrating, man. They had the cork ready to pop on 17. But I somehow squeezed that in and then hold the bunker shot, and they – End up celebrating on the group after. I was going to say, you told me this story last year at the Memorial about about uh, what you were telling your caddy. Well, I forget which hole you're walking up. Oh, in about Nicholas Foss. Yeah. Yeah, he was just so aggressive all day. He'd pump his fist when he hit in the fairway. And, I, you know, I remember saying on 15 to my caddy, I'm saying, it's coming down to us. Mickelson was losing his match. And, you know, I love telling this story about Mickelson. I'm eating one cornflake at a time for breakfast, the last day of the Ryder Cup. Mickelson's going off like a 10th or 11th. Very vulnerable spot, right? This dude gets three of those big British waffles, 
two fried eggs, syrup all over the place, cuts the whole thing up and wolfs down the whole thing. And I said to my caddy, I said, you know, I said to my wife, I said, he's not playing good today. All the blood's in his stomach. He's not going to have any blood in his fingertips. That's what Hogan used to say. I didn't eat because I wanted the blood in my hand, so I had the best feel. So they, they don't do that anymore. They don't think like that. But all I was thinking, and then he ordered a Diet Coke. I'm like, why'd you get a Diet Coke, bro? You should have just gotten a regular Coke. Anyway, it's coming down to us. And I just said to my caddy, Mickelson's all his blood's in his stomach. He's not going to come back and win that match because he was behind. And uh, then about 15th, third shot or 16, I remember looking at my caddy and saying, you know, this guy's been a whatever all day. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't deserve the clinching point because you you're revered if you get that point in Europe. And uh, I said, he doesn't deserve it, Patrick. He doesn't deserve it. And I kept saying that, and I said that a bunch, and all the pressure went away from me. Well, Instead of thinking, I'm going to lose the Ryder Cup, it's going to lose it on my watch. They're going to celebrate on me, which they would have loved to have done. That's how my brain was thinking. I just couldn't handle it. But then I shifted it to he doesn't deserve it, and I swear it changed everything. And then you had that glorious high-five session after holding the bunker. That was totally my caddy's fault. But, you know, <laughs> I walked in there. I know that was a brutal look. Caddy blame on the, on the handshake. 100%. I love it. I love it. 100%. Well, and then I tell everybody we were going for a medium high-five, not a high-five. But – uh, I remember getting in that bunker, and, and I looked at Patrick, and I said, i got to hold this, don't I? And he looked right at me and didn't say a word, and the last thing I said to him was, of course I do. And then I hit it, and it went in. And so we went crazy. <laughs> he doesn't deserve it, Patrick. He doesn't deserve it, Patrick. That's what we were screaming. We just went eight. My neck was bulging. I regret it. I really did. <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> no, it is actually great. That was a bit of a preview, I guess. Or I guess, no, a throwback to 93, your bunker shot at uh, Muirfield Village at Memorial. That was another situation where, you know, when I hit it in the bunker, I was one behind. I hit it in first with a five iron and then uh, the 18th hole at Jack's course. And Payne was in a little bit of a divot. I didn't see it. He hit seven iron and he hit it heavy. I knew as soon as he hit it, I said, ooh, that sounded fat. Buried it in the bunker. And I'm only one behind. And he Payne blasted out about 10 or 11 feet above the hole. And in my mind, I'm thinking he's not making that because he's putted terrible all day. And you got to get this up and down. And all I thought about was, don't miss this playoff. Don't miss this playoff. It's going to be a playoff. And uh, I'd been hitting bunker shots all week in the evening after dinner. We were staying just on the other side of the driving range. All week I was in there playing around in the bunkers, slapping it and hitting it. Unbelievable. It's just one of those things. And then all of a sudden that moment arose. And what was really pretty, probably a pretty tough shot, just like I'd been at, at the bunkers all night. Don't miss a playoff. Don't miss a playoff. And as soon as I hit it, it chattered right away. I tell you what, I think my hand, my club was in my hand before the ball hit the green. I hit, had, because I'd been playing around like that all week. And man, it trickled in. It went in the back of the hole. It didn't go in the side. Seven year old me was there when that happened. You were? I was there. I, I grew up on that golf course and going to that tournament every year. And if I if I remember right, I felt like the crowd was really pulling for pain on that day. Did you Everyone feel that? wanted pain that uh, okay. day. He had Just... those <laughs> Cleveland Brown knickers on or whatever, yeah. Cincinnati Bengals or whatever. He had it figured out. Mm-hmm. When it came to that outfit he would wear, the NFL, and we'd go to a town. Yeah. It was brilliant. And what a brilliant thing that was for him. But yeah, they all wanted pain. And uh, but the I've never heard a cheer like that in my life. Mm-hmm. Maybe Hartford because I chipped in to win Hartford once, and that cheer was that cheer was pretty loud. But that thing at Memorial, bro, it was unreal. And so that yeah, that same year is the year you won your your PGA Championship, mm-hmm. Inverness, yep. over Greg Norman. 
What do you did you? I guess probably I would imagine going to that playoff. You don't give one single shit about Norman's Norman's major championship history and the heartbreak he's endured. Right? He's just in the guy you're playing against. And they, probably most people wanted Greg to win. Yeah, I know the guys producing the CBS telecast wanted Greg to win because <laughs> you know, they showed him all the time. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I had just become the best player not to win a major when I won Jack's tournament. Or Boston, I won. Yeah, no, maybe Jack's tournament. Then I won Boston after I won Jack's tournament, and then we went to the PGA. And I was in mid-season form. That's all I can tell you. And I'd played Inverness quite a bit in these uh, Dana Proams. And uh, I remember having the most unbelievable practice session before I left the house. And for the first time in my life, I looked at the three guys watching me, and I said, "If I don't win the PGA, it's because I'm scared." That's all I said. So I was confident. And to me, it was like, are you scared or, or not? Do you want to win more than you're afraid to blow it? That's what it boils down to. Right. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to win more than I was afraid to blow it. Didn't matter if it was Greg Norman or who. And um, come Sunday, I didn't have the pressure of the lead. I was one back or something, second to last group or third to last, second to last group, I think. Played with Bob Estes, who's a piece of cake to play with, except he was kind of slow. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, it just happened. I, I was lucky to win. I know my stats for the week. I, I think I led the week in driving distance, was second for the week in fairways hit, and was first for the week in greens and regulation, and I won in a playoff. I mean, I was lucky to win. I didn't putt that good. <laughs> I didn't a have a three-putt, but I could have easily lost. Norman left a ball in a bunker. He had those brutal lip-outs. I could have easily not won and hit it the best I've ever hit it in my life. Do you think that winning in general, and especially when it comes to majors, gets a bit overrated in that sense, and that, that maybe that didn't even feel like your best major performance ever, and that just was the one that happened to fall your way? I think that I tend to think that people, you know, are really hard on guys that you know may have several top fives in majors but haven't won. I mean, what could Ricky have done much better in this past Masters to to have to have won? You know, Patrick Reed beat him by one, but he shot fourteen under. It, it sometimes the way it falls is just. It happens know. all the time. It happened to Calcavecchia at the Masters. It happened to Davis Love at the Masters. Um, you know, it's it's a real luxury to be able to say, to be able to ask this question. Well, do you think Patrick Reed's going to win another major, or do you think he's a one-major guy, or do you think he's going to win three or four or five? And I'm like, no, what a stupid question that is. <laughs> I heard it on the talk radio the other day. I said, what an idiotic question that is. He just won the Masters. Let's go see what that level of confidence is going to do for him. To speculate on how a golfer is going to play, it's just to me as a golfer who knew every day was different, it's not like football teams. If you're better, you're better. Right. you got to have turnovers to have a chance. Golf, Patrick Reed did it. Will he ever do it again? Well, I don't know, but the first one's the hardest. <laughs> I can tell you that. That's and it's got to be hard too with with your current role. Like with Fox, you're going to be doing obviously a bunch of media leading up to it, and everyone's going to want your pick for for Shinnecock. And it's it's like we don't, nobody knows these things, and no experts know who's going to win. I mean, you can make some guesses and whatnot. But oh, I think Roy McIlroy's going to win, and then he misses a cut. Yeah, and then, oh, I think Tiger's going to win. I thought Tiger would win the Masters. I really did. I <laughs> mm-hmm. just said this is it. This is how because you know the way Tiger's career went, he couldn't just make a, a hole in one his first year on tour. He had to do it on 16 in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Place goes crazy. It's unbelievable. Everything he did was just, and I just figured the table was set. Mm-hmm. You know, watching those guys on the range, though, I got to tell you, there there was a little bit of a gap from the way I saw it. I thought Rory looked the best with the ball, the flight, the sound. Stenson's right up there. Ricky's up there. Um, I thought that McElroy and 
read, I thought, were a little better than everybody else. And sure enough, there they were right there at the end. I told everybody that would listen. I said, I saw a gap. <laughs> Patrick Reed and Rory McIlroy. Well, sure enough, there they were. Yeah, it was – I mean, that, not, a lot of, not a lot of people were really expecting that from Reed from start to finish, but that was impressive. But I think we kind of – we got talk, stuck in a Ryder Cup there between 87 and 93, but didn't kind of fully realize until doing research just how dominant you were during that time period. I mean, and then following the PGA, what was the time frame? That's when you got your cancer diagnosis. How, how long after the PGA? Well, I knew before the PGA ended that I was going to be doing a biopsy mm-hmm. or at least going out to L.A. to see if I needed another biopsy because Frank Job, he's the guy that invented Tommy John surgery. Dr. Job uh, called me on Friday night of the PGA, and after seeing a bone scan, he said, I'd like to do a biopsy Tuesday after the PGA. I'm like, well, man, I mean, I just shot in the 60s the first two rounds. I'm playing pretty good. I just got invited to the Skins game in November. So I won the PGA, and then he called me Sunday night to congratulate me. So I guess we can put it off a little bit. So we put it off a little bit. And then at the Skins game is when I got the biopsy done. So that was in November. And it was showed up that there was – they took 50 or 60 slides, smears. They cut a hole in my bone, basically, and scratched it all out because it was black. And they smeared on all these slides. And of all the slides, it only – lymphoma showed up on two slides. So now you go through that battle of the blood work, bone marrow, all that stuff. It didn't show up in my blood. It didn't show up in my bone marrow. And it's weird because lymphoma is a disorder of the blood. And uh, it wasn't in my blood. It was in the bone. So they got it. But it was just a few months after, August, September, October, November. Mm-hmm. Were you in a lot of pain leading yeah. up to that? Is that you knew something was – Something Brood. was off there. Someone yeah. tapped you on the shoulder. It's like, oh, man. Really? Yeah. It hurt. Yeah. And it then, hurt. Thank goodness, because it doesn't always hurt. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, so what did that do, I guess, to your to your competitive spirit in the, com- in the coming years? I mean, was your, was your motivation to play golf? How long did it take for you to get back on the golf course? Because you made four starts in 1994, right, the next year. Yeah, 94, I was able to come back and make four starts. And then uh, I remember 95, you know, I could play and then take a nap after I played a morning round and then still go to sleep at seven o'clock at night. So I wasn't right for a while. And then I switched clubs. You know, I was, you remember the Callaway pipe wrenches that first came out, the very first ones, how weird they were. Um, you know, I always say don't switch for the money, but I, I did. I switched for the money and I don't think they helped my career any. I remember playing with Seve in Jamaica, the first tournament I really used them and I shot 62 playing with Seve and we got done. You know, Seve called me when I was sick and all that. We got done, and we're in the trailer there doing our scorecard. And uh, he he says to me, after I shoot 62, by the way, he says, uh, those clubs, it's no good. I said, well, how, why do you think that? He, and, and he says, the ball is too flat. <laughs> That's all he said. And in the end, he's probably right. Wow. Because I finished fourth in Hawaii, the next tournament I played, so I'm like, I'm on the way back. Here I go. I could play with anything. But my swing changed. There's no question about it. Slung the thing up like this, and they had to go more upright and more upright. And uh, by the time, you know, fortunately I had an out clause. I was able to switch to another set of irons for a lot less money, and I did it the last year of the deal. And four months later I won uh, Hawaiian Open, 2000. Mm -hmm. 2000, that was your – But I love Callaway. I'd do anything for Callaway. I swear I would um, because – Good save because this is a Callaway-sponsored show. Oh, is it? No, I mean (laughs) – when they first came out with that club, it was it was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I love that company. I loved Ely Callaway and uh, Dick Helmstetter and the guys that formed that company. And to this day, I feel like I'd do anything for Callaway. That 
product was not a great product, but it put them on the map. They made great woods already by then. Hmm. I had already won the PGA with their woods because their woods were great. And their woods are still great. And their irons are great now. I remember writing a letter there, uh, or sending them a letter there that uh, really said you're ignoring a classic reality of sport by ignoring the hosel. <laughs> that's, that's what I was telling them. And uh, in the end, they, they now they got irons with hosels. Mm-hmm. And then they got a lot of people playing great irons. Patrick Reed just won the Masters with Callaway irons. Mm-hmm. So you so you won in two thousand. Um, when did you when did you give up stop playing the, the PGA Tour full time? Once I turned fifty, mm-hmm. pretty much. I played less when I was forty nine, maybe or forty eight. But I was a Ryder Cup captain forty seven, and I was doing TV. Um, I think I played a full schedule right up. I kept my card every single year, pretty much. So, and you just have no interest in, in playing the Champions Tour, or what was kind of your? You know, I was really stinking pretty bad at golf yeah. there for a while. It was driving me crazy, um, and I got hurt a couple times legitimately, which I never got hurt really, except for his cancer. <laughs> um, but I fell off my motorcycle and broke my shoulder and had to get a plate in there, and that was kind of like that ended it mm-hmm. in my mind. That was it. And when I did get out there. You know, I thought it was going to be a bunch of cigar smoking, let's drink some red wine. and uh, <laughs> People are grinding. Just as harder, harder. Wow. And I realized that. I had a conversation with my caddy. I'm up against the chain link fence there at uh, Newport Beach. Beautiful place out there in L.A. area or California area anyway, and uh, right on the water. And I'm up against the chain link fence hitting down the left, hitting down the fence where I was using the fence, you know, to hold off left. And I looked down that driving range, and I just saw these guys. I grabbed my caddy. I said, come here. And I grabbed the club and put it in the back. I said, do me a favor and walk three yards out there. Look down that driving range and tell me what you see. This is a true story. He said, uh, he looked down here. He says, I see a bunch of old guys. You ought to be kicking their ass. And we, I busted out laughing. I thought it was funny. And I said, that's not what I see. He says, what do you see? I said, I see a bunch of Hall of Famers more committed than me. And I swear, I was having dread before I went to every event, mm-hmm. that was it. And I didn't play. I played one tournament after that with Blackmar, and I was done. And uh, it's okay. I mean, you know, I can still go. I'm still exempt. Right. I'm fit for the most part. I'm still fairly fast, and I still hit the sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have any uh, designs on going out, really, in my mind. Do and you I, miss it? Do you miss that no. competitive golf? Mm-mm. Not that much. Because you've got a pretty great gig in in golf these days. Well, yeah, that's another thing too. I had another option. Right. I didn't have to sweat over five footers, um, but you know you get outworked. I, I wouldn't be able to. I wouldn't pretend to be able to go out there and shoot sixteen under on the courses they're shooting it on. Mm-hmm. So. And of course, you you were the two thousand eight Ryder Cup captain. We we touched on that. I think what it can be easily forgotten that you were the captain. Right after back to back eighteen and a half, nine and a half losses, I know. I mean, the U.S. was at a complete. And those two teams, those 04 and 06 teams, are pretty hilarious names if you look back at it. So I went to go look at your 08 team, thinking like, all right, this is when all the resurgence came. And I was shocked to see some of the names on that team. So think about it. Yeah, it's. I mean, it was Chad Campbell was on that team. Boo was on that team. You mentioned Justin Leonard, uh, which was post. Justin Leonard's prime, I think. Yeah, and, sure it was. Um, so, all right. ben, ben Curtis was on the team. Ben Curtis, that's right. I thought Ben Curtis was the gutsiest player on the team. He didn't play that well. We had a great team, um, but we didn't have what you would consider great players. And uh, 
the outside the box thinking, you know, to take the 12 guys and make three four man teams out of them really intrigued the guys that had been getting their butts kicked at Ryder Cup. And it got them engaged right away. And then they still do it now. The only guy that didn't do it after, the two guys that didn't do it after were uh, Corey didn't have any interest in what we did. And uh, Watson didn't have any interest in what we did, period. And it backfired on them both a little bit. But the small group philosophy is Europe has it naturally. The, yeah. the Spaniards play together. The Englishmen play together. The uh, you know the Swedes play together. It's just the way it is. How did you develop that? I mean, I, I think from the outside looking in, it seems the Ryder Cup, the captaincy and the leadership can be almost sort of a buddies club or almost kind of a – a thing that you know where it comes from players moving into the captaincy role and everyone's kind of afraid to ruffle feathers how did you i guess did you have kind of a blank canvas to work with because we were coming off such two humiliating losses that your philosophy appealed to the pga of america or how did that process work? well i had to sell myself because in 06 when layman was captain Corey pavin had gotten in there and he was really lobbying hard to be the 08 captain and i had been promised it because they wanted me to do it in 06 because that would have been pains and i was like "Eh, you know i don't want to symbol i don't want to do that I want to be 08 captain. Okay, good. Well, come 08, uh, M.G. Orner called me up, former PGA president. He said, you still want to be the captain? I said, yeah. He said, well, you need to call Roger Warren, and you need to start lobbying for it because you're about to lose it. I said, well, it was promised to me. He said, you better start calling. And I did. I called Roger Warren, and I told him what I was going to do. I said, you know, he was an old basketball coach, and I just said, I watched the Navy SEALs documentary of how they take large groups and make them into small groups. And uh, I said, I want to do that with this team. I want to do four three-man teams or three four-man teams and whatever. And he bought, he loved it. And that's how I landed it. I lobbied for it. And then uh, when I got with Ron Braun, who's, you know, he, he made the biggest difference, uh, Dr. Ron Braun, and how you put the players in the groups. Are you going to do it, you know, how you do it? I said, well, you know, usually we use like games and guys that are buddies. He said, have you ever considered like personalities? So – and I hadn't, and I gave it a little bit of thought, and we ended up categorizing through just through observation uh, four different personality types, and then we used Myers Briggs: green light, caution light, red light. That's a simple version, and we tried to put green light personalities together in the four main groups, and they had total control of whatever they did, how they prepared. And the message was play to play great, which is Rotella, play aggressive, which is everybody, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, let's go show off. I just want them to show off for the crowd. I want them to prepare. There's no shortcut to success. You're not. You can't hope for it. You can't wish for it. You have to be prepared. Let's out prepare them this week. I took control of the course. I got four picks instead of two. Um, you know, we we took over. I took over that. That was it, your recommendation to do, go to four picks instead of two. Or that four was picks instead of two was huge. Um, I didn't want to. I wanted only the four majors to count the year before. Um, and then every tournament counts the year of. My philosophy was that I'd rather have a hot player than a guy who has experience. Because, you know, if you're experienced and get your butt kicked every year, that's not, I'm not looking for that either. So you, your captain's picks were Steve Stricker, Hunter Mahan, J.B. Holmes, and Chad Campbell. Yeah. Who was, who was I guess, like a top player at the time to be considered on the team that just didn't fit maybe your personality types or what you had currently going? Was there, was there con- I don't remember controversy around somebody not getting picked. A couple guys were mad at me, but there wasn't controversy, and, and nobody knew this until I wrote the book after the, called Cracking the Code. Um, and these are, these are business principles applied to a sporting event. It's really kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but – the way I did it in the end, and I, I hemmed and hawed a little bit, but we had green light personalities for each pod that uh, didn't make the team, 
and I let the three guys who were in the pod, because I secured the three pods, mm-hmm. um, I picked Stricker to go into this one pod, because uh, with Ben Curtis, I think, made it, and uh, oh, help me. Oh, Stuart Sink. So I let those three decide only between two players, Verplank and Chad Campbell were the green lights that I thought their personalities fit that pod. The uh, Mickelson's pod with Justin Leonard and Anthony Kim, they had six choices of green light personality types that could go in there. So those three got together. They looked at the six names. I told them, if you choose outside the six names I give you, I'll explain to you why you're wrong. But you decide out of these six names. And they picked Hunter Mayhem. Perfect. Hmm. The burden was off me. Furick and uh, Kenny Perry wanted Bomber, J.B. Holmes. It was perfect. So it was really a green light fest Is in the end. We avoided the caution and we had no red light personality types where they would just clash. <laughs> and the, Ron's philosophy was in a pressure situation, um, like minds do better. People that think the same, people that organize their sock drawer by collar, they should be together. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, so okay. Yeah, break, that's definitely was breaking the mold. And I think uh, it, was, it was needed at the time, most definitely. And I think it's kind of modified versions of it is what. Oh, it's changed, it's changed significantly a lot since now. Then. It's still four picks, I think. Watson wanted three because he wanted you to get there on merit. I'm not sure what Furyk gets, three or four. but It's four. It's, it is they four. do the three picks and then one pick late in the game, the Horschel rule, which oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think is yeah, not yeah. very well executed. But um, you, you mentioned you said you took control of the course. What, what do you mean by taking control of the course? I bonded with the superintendent, a guy named Mark Wilson. He ended up naming his uh, little puppy after me, Zinger, <laughs> which was really fun. And uh, he, had, he was a great personality. And I called him up and I said, I think you can be an integral part of our success. First thing I did was ask Kerry Haig, am I allowed to control the course? And he said, well, you'd be the first one to ever do it. And I said, well, they control it on us. They control it on us at the Belfry. And so I took it. And you know what? The other day, Tony Jacklin was with me when I was with Nicholas. I told you about Nicholas, some of the things Nicholas said. But I asked Tony, I said, did you guys control the course? Come on, be honest. And he, he says, of course we did. <laughs> and we all busted out laughing. I felt vindicated by that. Yeah. So I was the only American captain, and all those Ryder Cups were getting beat that wanted to control the course. That surprised me. But anyway, the philosophy was if I had guys that drove it dead straight, I'd have some big rough. If I had guys that bombed it and it sprayed, well, you know, they're great iron players. I want them to be able to get to the green and judge a flyer if they had to. And it turns out we had more bombers. Um, setting the tee markers up was important because, you know, you control the, the bombers' safety if they miss hit was built into every bunker, every corner to carry. <laughs> and uh, it just was smart. I thought it was, you know, you control the controllables, and they allowed that to be a controllable. All you can do is control the controllables. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else for you. And so I took a, you know, control of the controllables. Mark Wilson was great. There was a tree limb on 16. Uh, Boo, uh, J.B. Holmes said uh, to Olin Brown, Olin Brown radios me. See, my, my assistants, I had Olin with the rednecks. I had um, – Stockton with the steady supportive guys, and I had Raymond with the aggressive guys. Makes sense, right? Their personalities were green lights for each group. But they couldn't talk to the players during the matches. They could only talk to them during the practice rounds. Well, anyway, Olin radios me. He goes, hey, Zinger, you know that giant tree over there to the left on 16? I said, yeah. He says, there's a tree out there about 300 – it's about 300 yards out, and there's a limb up there about 20 or 30 feet in the air that J.B. Holmes thinks could be in his way. And I laughed. I said, no way, bro. We can't even reach that tree. So we laughed about it. And I called Mark Wilson right away. I said, hey, Mark, uh, apparently there's a tree limb over there on 16. <laughs> he goes, Zanger, Olin just called me. I already got some guy on it. We're cutting that thing out right now. 
that's how that went, dude. And we loved it. Oh, man. He so, cut two trees out because of eyeline eye stuff that guys didn't like. Wow. Limbs. Not trees, but limbs. I, I remember Justin Rose kind of complaining a bit about the pin set up at the Ryder Cup at Hazeltine, just that he felt like they were kind of in the middle. He, he compared it actually to a pro-am, the pin positions. Did you do anything like with hole locations or anything like that to that detail? Of course. And not only that, but my philosophy was that Europe knows how to play match play more than we do. In, in match play, you have to attack every flag, dude. And I just – Looked at our team, and I thought, these guys, Europe's going to practice in all the corners, which they did. They practiced in all the corners at, at Valhalla, and I'm sure they did at Hazeltine, too. Never put it in a corner. Put it right in the middle. <laughs> all you got to do is find straight up the hill, and you got every putt red. And so I ran them up the middle as best I could. At Valhalla, it was tricky because some of the greens are put in th- three segments, so you got a back right, a back left, and mm-hmm. a middle front. And uh, But for the most part, if I could find – I'd find the middle of that – you know, a little spot, but I didn't want any tricky pins for my guys because I wanted them to make birdies. And I said, we're here to make birdies. We're going to attack mm-hmm. right in the middle of every green. And they did it again. Davis is smart. You know, if Mickelson's the one that loved that more than anybody. He thought it was brilliant. You know how aggressive he is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Mickelson's the one uh, constant. He's been at every Ryder Cup since our Ryder Cup. And, they do, and Mickelson basically is – the guy that's demanding the philosophy of the three four-man teams, the whole pins, I guess, and all that stuff. And uh, now they have a little click going, which is, I think, it's saved the Ryder Cup. Um, You know, Europe, if you are an assistant, you're pretty much going to be a captain eventually, two to four years. We never did that. Uh, We just random willy-nilly picked Watson out of here and -and so-and-so out of there. It was different every year for our, our players. It's the same every year for our players now. It's the same every year, and that makes a big difference. Huge. You got a guy who's a captain and a couple assistants. Those assistants are going to be captains. They all know how to do it. We have a formula. Jacqueline formulated a formula for them, and I guess I did it for us. Do you? Maybe you have too much info, inside info on it and can't share it, but do you have prognostications for what the future captaincies are going to look like in the coming years? Just look at who the assistants are. The so order. Do you know who's going to be? In no, what? I don't know. They didn't even ask me if, about Furyk. I never get asked who you think should be the next captain, mm-hmm. except for when Davis got picked for 2012. I lobbied for Davis. Mm-hmm. Was it 2012? 20 and, tw- and 16. No, yeah, not 12. I didn't lobby for him. Yeah. I lobbied for him in 16. Mm-hmm. Um, they were going to go somewhere else. And you know, uh, once again, go back to Ron a little bit. He had the idea of this PGA pedigree and how important that is. And uh, Davis is part of the pedigree. His dad's a member of the PGA of America and all that. He's won the PGA, PGA Championship. Championship. Why yeah. are you going outside of that? You you got to – the PGA of America has the same system in place now, or they've always had in place, that the Ryder Cup team has now. Assistant, assistant, captain, treasurer, secretary or whatever, <laughs> president. <Yeah. laughs> boom, boom, boom. Same system now. So, uh, But I lobbied hard for Davis to be the captain in 2016 because they were getting ready to go another way. Mm-hmm. But other than that, they didn't call me and say, who do you think the captain should be for 20? It's like, you're – see ya. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, I, I had always pictured Stricker in 2020. I think that looks likely with the, that going to Whistling Straits. And I said Tiger in 22 and Phil at Bethpage in 24. But somebody, people are correct me and say, now Phil's going to be before that. Probably. And I, I just don't know the sequence of order sure. and how they're thinking. And, uh, you know, now they have a lot of captains – and yeah. I don't have input. I'm out. I'm yeah. not in that clique. I'm just telling you. But I know that there are guys that could and should be captains. 
you know, uh, how come Justin Leonard doesn't get a nod or a look? He played in a lot of Ryder Cups. He's a hero of one, but he's out pretty much. And same with Stuart Saint, can't ever be a captain. It just doesn't feel like it. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's been taken over by another group. But that group is great. Yeah. And uh, it's, I just – I'm happy where the Ryder Cup is. It's interesting and, and cool to see Tiger and Phil invest in it the way they have from yep. both a playing and a leadership standpoint. Their legacy in the Ryder Cup was going to be something very different than if they win, you know, four of the next five or so. The kind of their leadership towards that, I think, leaves their legacy a little bit different than it would have been. A hundred percent. And uh, I really think that pod system helped. Mm-hmm their relationship because I think Phil is the one constant and he's kept selling it and um, he demanded it in 2012. They mm-hmm. did it. They should have won. They were up by four points going to Sunday. They should have won 2012, but the ghost of Seve paid him a visit. And, uh, but I think that's the only way that Tiger and Phil really were going to get together is they were bonded by this four man group system. And mm-hmm. it, I just think it really helped their relationship in the end. And Phil, of course, it's hard not to get along with Phil yeah. after a while. Tiger, you know, he doesn't care one way or the other if you get along with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Phil, he wants people to like him. Mm-hmm. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it for uh, this section of our conversation with Paul Azinger. We actually continued talking a bit longer uh, but covering almost uh, the rest of the conversation covered the U.S. Open. We're actually going to clip that audio and save it for our U.S. Open preview podcast uh, rather than split this episode into two parts. I know this one ran a bit long as it was. So uh, stay tuned for that. Thanks a ton to Paul for the time. Sorry that ended kind of abruptly, uh, but stay tuned for more from Paul on our U.S. Open preview, and we'll have a lot more fun stuff uh, around that time. So cheers, and uh, thank you for listening. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. <laughs>